Hello and welcome to the Artsy Podcast. I'm your host, Isaac Kaplan, joined this week by editor Casey Lesser. Hi, Isaac. Hey, Casey. And special guest, Dr. Delphine Taylor, Associate Professor of Medicine at Columbia University Medical Center. Hello. Hello. So you may be asking why we have a doctor as a guest on an art podcast. As Casey reported earlier this summer, medical schools across the country are increasingly turning to art and the humanities to train future doctors. So Delphine, since you're intimately involved in a lot of these programs, maybe you can start off by telling us why they exist. What do med students get out of them? Well, I'd say that traditionally, the programs that have offered art classes for medical students probably got away with it because they wanted the students to feel that what they were doing was learning a clinical skill, a very obvious clinical skill, like look at a rash and you will be so much better at knowing a rash if you can describe this Renoir, something like that. I don't really see the connection, but something like that. They really, I think they sold it as this is a skill in perception and observation and recognition, which are still terms we use. But I think for many schools, at least our school, it's moved away from just the very superficial aspect of a clinical skill, but it's a richer experience in that it's more on reflection, clinical and critical thinking, and other bigger topics such as really being able to tolerate ambiguity. Right. And it's, I think, worth noting here that this isn't a new age thing that's developed in the last two or three years. I mean, there, there's a long history, even at Columbia. Yeah. How, how long do these programs date back for? I would say that at least from the 1970s, there's been some, certainly humanities classes, reading and writing. And I think at least in the last 20 years or so, other schools have been doing it more and more. I'd say Columbia, since at least when I was a medical student, the option was there. And now it's, in the last 20 years, it's been a required part of the program. And Casey, in your piece, you look at Columbia, but you also trace this trend more broadly. Wh- where do you sort of trace its beginnings to? Well, the first program of medical humanities in the U.S. was Penn State. So they've had that program since 1967. But in more recent years, they developed these richer, more arts-focused seminars, for example, where students will be learning about Impressionist art as a way to better gain skills that they'll use as doctors. But then also, you know, they have classes in jazz and other areas of the arts and humanities. And then, for example, Yale has a course of observational looking that happens at the Yale Center for British Art. And that class has been around since the 90s. So broadly speaking, as Delphine just mentioned, these programs are aimed at helping medical students gain skills like critical thinking, observational and communication skills, you know, skills that will help with bedside manner, as well as bias awareness and empathy. And so in some schools like Yale, there's this observational looking course, but then there's also a lot of on-campus activities that are run by students. So students form on-campus groups where the medical students will interact with students from other graduate schools, and they'll talk about issues through interdisciplinary discussions. And in some cases, these students are picking up a paintbrush. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. So also at Yale, one of the students that I spoke to for the piece, she started a drawing workshop that students do a lot of the time. As I mentioned at Penn State, there's this class with on Impressionism where students are actually painting Impressionist paintings. They have this exercise where one student is given a card with 
a famous painting on it. The other student doesn't know what it is, but through asking questions, they have to figure out what it looks like and then paint it. So that's really kind of a exercise that the professor, Michael Flanagan, described as taking a patient's history, getting to really understand how to ask questions effectively and not really just ask yes or no questions. At Columbia, how have you expanded on maybe some of these offerings? What's special about your arts and humanities courses? Yeah, so the required portion is every medical student, we have about 155 in their second semester of their first year signs up for a six-week program. It's just one afternoon per week. And, you know, there's a lottery because some students want to be at a museum looking at art. Others want to do poetry, fiction, dance, music, photography. There's lots of different ones. Um, But they meet with that same professor over the six weeks. And those people are people who are, you know, at the highest degree in their fields. So if it's art educators at MoMA, Carrie McGee is someone who um, I've actually been able to take her class as well. Poet um, Owen Lewis teaches the poetry classes. Chris Adrian, who's a novelist, has taught the fiction writing workshops. And an important distinction with Columbia is that this is a required part of the curriculum. Yeah. Which is not always the case. And again, yes, observation and perception is, again, a good selling point. And I think that students would argue that that is one of the reasons why they do it. But we did do a study a couple of years ago in asking the students, well, do you think that this is beneficial and and in what ways? And they themselves in focus groups came up with the ideas of this is really about critical thinking and a lot about affiliation with patients. So we talk about empathy. That's, you know, being in somebody else's shoes is really helps. And they also talk about, and actually it's a theme that we sort of pursue throughout our curriculum, is this idea of being faced with uncertainty. And I think that's a really important thing to recognize, not just to assume that people can do that. I mean, even me walking in the studio today, it's a little intimidating. You know, I'm not in my (laughs) usual setting. Am I okay in my clothes? And, you know, so of course, we've all been in hospitals where we might feel the same way, feel a little bit intimidated. And how can we imagine, um, not easing it, but it might just be recognizing, recognizing that those things exist. And that may affect clinical outcomes and how physicians and patients relate to each other. So do you have to, you know, drag kids kicking and screaming to these classes? I, obviously, it's required, but is there a lot of resistance or, or how do the students kind of respond? There hasn't been resistance for a very long time. Um, I would say when there was more resistance, it really depended on what other courses were competing for their time. And those courses have evolved a little bit to be a little, I would say less challenging, but a little bit more flexible. So the students can take the time to go downtown, you know, to the Met. Or um, we're not yet in the Guggenheim, but I hope so soon. Um, And they really do appreciate that. And I think that's kind of interesting in terms of an institution or a program. Everyone has to buy in that this is important and valuable, not just for the clinical skills that we set out to teach them, but also this idea of a sense of belonging, um, that being a whole person is really important for lifelong learning and Joy, as I mentioned, just that this is a pleasurable thing to do. And something that another professor that I spoke to mentioned was that 
the coursework you're doing and the exposure to death and dying can be really hardening for some students and that, you know, building in these humanities things, whether it be a seminar or just kind of reflective writing, that can really help to diminish those signs of becoming, you know, more cynical and it can really help with empathy. So Columbia... I'd like to brag, is quite strong in the field that's called narrative medicine. And we integrate from day one reading, writing, and sharing for students. And we have a, um, a narrative portfolio to which the students contribute writings. And they um, an exercise that we have them do is at the end of each semester, they go back and look at all of their writings and comment on what do they see? Who do they see? So in terms of professional identity, and not just professional identity, I would say personal identity formation, this is kind of a valuable tool. And there's a sense when we read those and look at and, and are studying those portfolio entries, these things called the signature reflection, we do see grappling um, and recognition and desire to feel connected and you know we know that from the resilience literature what is resilience resilience is connectedness and i think medicine is different from a lot of professions because we are facing illness and death and loss or helplessness and how do we stay connected and feel that we have a purpose so that that tolerance of ambiguity. I'm not certain whether I can cure your cancer. Mm. I can't tell you if you'll be out of a cast in six weeks. Or I don't know if your grandmother is going to die this week or next month. But I have to be able to say that and also say what I don't know. Yeah, it sort of sounds like some of these topics in the most abstract are things that artists have kind of grappled with for, for a very long time, just through like different mm -hmm. mechanisms, different mm -hmm. ways. And in terms of how these programs have, have made an impact on doctors on students. How have you sort of seen that manifest? Well, uh, let me share a couple of anecdotes. Some of the students choose to do a life drawing class and they go, you know, week to week, learning how to draw from nude models. And some of them have written after the end of the six weeks essays on what they took from that experience. And often they write about the contrast between the perfect human form and people who are ill in the hospital and how this has helped them to recognize that that person who's in a gown, who might be wasted away, have IVs, might be in pain, is a person who may have looked like that nude model who you are drawing. So when you admire this perfection, what elements of, of perfection or self are still in those people? And what can you do to bring that out? people. So that's just something they identify themselves. And it's very powerful to hear them say that. I can also imagine it must be interesting for them to see like anatomy drawings in textbooks all the time. And like people carved up. I mean, I remember even from my very intro level biology classes, yeah. it's obviously very different uh, representation of the body than you would than you would get in, in like a live drawing class. Yeah. And I, th and I think something else that people talk about in medical training is this um, um, hardening of self, right? And I remember as a medical student being on the subway, carrying my netter, which is the colored illustration of, you know, body parts, and just flipping casually through the pages and people looking at me like, what are you doing? <laughs> um, and so I think that that sort of um, hardening or desensitization, that has to be part of medicine, right? How many people have I you know, shepherded out of life to death? Um, I have to have some of that. 
But that said, I really do think that the experience of seeing humanity through a different lens helps you not have it be so routine. And so, yes, life drawing, forcing yourself to compare that body to the cadaver that you're dissecting to that person in the hospital who has a gaping wound um, that you have to respond to without freaking out. Um, I think I'll stick to the arts. I'm getting, okay. <laughs> I'm getting queasy already just like thinking about this. Another example that I really enjoyed from Columbia's program is the um, course taught by Dr. Benjamin Schwartz, who is also a contributing cartoonist to The New Yorker. And so he teaches a comics course. And he told me about how that experience of learning to draw comics, being challenged to communicate visually and through words in a really effective way was a great way to understand different perspectives. So to think about being in the shoes of the patient, but then also as a great way to kind of be really conscious of the language you're using because it can be really hard to get stuck into in the jargon that you're learning about through medical school. So just a really um, kind of nice exercise. Yeah, his last one was really great. It did some medical students at the white coat ceremony, which is what we also started at Columbia. My class actually was the first group. And they're all, you know, standing there proud with their white coats on. And the caption is, first, do no harm. Next, go wild. <laughs> or then go wild. It's pretty good. <laughs> Going forward, how do you see the relationship between arts and doctors evolving and changing? I mean, I could just say, you know, and this you've definitely heard that as medicine has become more and more screen-based and more technical and people spend more time, unfortunately, entering information into a computer than at the bedside of a patient, this is a way of, you know, keeping people oriented toward people in a different way. As you said, you know, artists, writers, filmmakers have, I mean, the ones who we hear about are successful because they capture things that are universals. And we want people to not get hardened to, you know, the things that the people who are in front of them and the issues that are dealing with they're very vulnerable and they're vulnerable that time and maybe that one time and it can't become routine for you. So maybe it is walking through MoMA and looking at Cy Twombly and saying, you know, I don't get it. <laughs> What's the scribble scrabble about? And how is that Lita, you know? Um, and having a conversation with someone and say, well, actually I don't really see it that way. And allowing that to happen brings back and restores, or hopefully it's not restoring because these are new medical students, but maintains that sense of connectedness um, and humanness. That's why we went into it. All right. So Casey, let's start with you. Where are you going to be drinking white wine in the art world this week? Well, this week is one of the best weeks for openings in New York, and it starts this evening. Um, so in Chelsea and Lower East Side and a few uptown, there's going to be a ton of gallery openings. But one that I'm particularly excited to see is the new Kara Walker show at Sycamore Jenkins. It's a new show of paintings that she's been creating over the summer. And um, it's kind of highly anticipated. And she released it with a pretty uh, 
pretty resounding and political message. This was the show that had a the press release yeah, uh, that yeah. got a lot of attention. Yeah, yeah. I have a Kara Walker story. Oh, really? Yeah, I was in um, Riverside Park where I live and she used to live up there. I don't think she does anymore. And she was in the playground, sitting by the playground with her daughter sketching. And I was, I think, with one of my kids um, in the park as well. And I was just curious because I'm a curious person and sort of leaned over her shoulder and said, oh, what are you, what are you drawing? And I looked down and it was a beautiful, exquisite drawing of rope. You know, now at the time I was like, oh, that's so lovely. You can just draw rope so beautifully. Now, of course, knowing what that rope obviously was meant to represent, um, I don't know if I would have I don't know how I would have reacted differently, but she was, you know, very humble and we talked about kids. And then I got to see her work um, at the Tate Modern and then knew what a huge superstar she is. And I was just saying how I regretted that I didn't go to the Domino Sugar Factory because that piece would have been really great. I also wish I had made it to the Domino Sugar Factory. Big, big regret. But in terms of what art you're going to be checking out this week. Okay. Maybe the Kara Walker show, but also what else? Yes. So I think it's funny that this is called like, where are you going to get white wine? Because I think mine, I'd have to have the white wine before or after. Because my plan is to go to the Fulton Street Station and see the new public work by Chris Doyle, who um, I've been following on Facebook for a while. And he did a piece last year in um, Times Square where he got to put up his um, animations all over all of the screens. So you were sitting there, it was like at midnight for two minutes. And this is similar where, you know, you're just sitting there looking at all those crazy ads and then all of a sudden there are animations of birds and fish and streams and rivers. And his thing at Fulton Street is similar, these enormous screens of bright color of sort of water and cranes and i think it'll be really interesting to see people react to that do they notice the change from a lace potato chip ad to something that's about the world around us in a much you know in a you know like a bigger a bigger view but in a two-dimensional bright colored flashy way so i recommend and if i know any good wine bars near <laughs> fulton street station i'll check it out just throw it in a brown paper bag there you go no i was gonna say that you. i don't <laughs> that's not Thunderbird. you know official artsy advice <laughs> okay but, thank you, you know. <laughs> i will be heading to moma mine i feel like mine is very boring in comparison seeing frank lloyd wright's uh major exhibition there the exhibition is coming about uh on the 150th anniversary of his birth and i think it's particularly interesting now with frank lloyd wright i'm not sure how much of this is touched on in the moma exhibition but the work that's kind of being done uh around parts of his practice that haven't gotten a lot of attention in the past, especially his emphasis on creating affordable homes for working class uh, people and other other artists who he trained um, in upstate New York uh, who, who went on to do some some really interesting things with with his quasi-American, you know, modernism. I so. saw that this weekend and I just recommend that rather than wine, you have a couple of espressos beforehand because <laughs> those rooms are real so dark. Really- and, you know, you're looking at really small things. So. I know. I find that with MoMA shows, sometimes it takes me it, to see the whole thing. You got to go back at least a second time because by the end, you're just so tired. So start from the beginning and then go back and start from the end. And yep. then you usually, your brain absorbs all of it. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much to our guests for joining me. Casey, great to have you on. Anytime. And Dr. Taylor, it was great to have you at the office. Thank you very, very much. Please remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already. See you guys next time.
our producer this week, as always, editorial associate Abigail Kane. The theme music is by Broke for Free. <laughs>